please stand for the reading of God's word. The scripture text that we will be examining this morning is Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 45. This portion of scripture can be found on page 494 of the blue ESV Bibles. Those Bibles are located in the back pocket seat cover in the seat in front of you. And as always, those Bibles are available for you to take home if you do not have one already. Once again, we'll be reading Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 45. Hear the word of the Lord. And they were on the road, going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles Lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Thus says God's word. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the the amazing truth of that last verse that Raven read to us, that, Lord, you came as the very pinnacle, the example to us of humility. God, that though you were the forever worshipped by angels, Son of God and Son of Man, You arrived on the scene here with us not to be served, not to be pampered, not to be just fawned over, Lord, but you came to serve. And that service took the form of you giving your life away. The thing most precious in the universe, the life of the Son of God, was expended for the likes of people like us. And you have ransomed us from sin and from death and from the devil by your great humility. And for that, the Bible tells us that now you sit forever enthroned and have been bestowed with a name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee 
on earth, on, on under the earth, in the heavens, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we thank you for this. Lord, we pray that you would help us to hear with spiritually enabled ears the instructions you give to your disciples, that you would help us to not just hear it and not take comfort in a in a comforting word from familiar scriptures, Lord, but that you would help us to apply it and to examine ourselves deeply and thoroughly, Lord God. Lord, I pray that you would help me who also needs such an examination that I would, I would be able to preach God and, and display for this people your words in a way that would be helpful. God, and not condemning and not a heavy weight, but a, a freedom to live as you've called us to live. And I thank you for all of this in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. You can be seated. What a great morning already. Amen. It's great to see Tavares. Baptized is great to have Danae Fleener in the house with us. Our our prodigal daughter has come home, and so um, she uh, she moved several months ago to go back home to Mineral Wells, and we're always glad to see her. So it's good to have you here, Danae. Um, hey, I want uh, to uh, give some appreciation for some unsung heroes, uh, real quick. If you don't mind me doing that before we get started, um, we have these flower beds uh, on the sides of the. The, the uh, church here and the ladies who meet up for our Wednesday morning ladies group uh, were looking at those and they said those could use a little help and they could and so they got out here all of them and were on their knees weeding and cleaning out those flower beds and kind of making them uh, look nice and they look very nice and so uh, it was it was a, a much overdue work and they just did it gladly I didn't ask them to Justin didn't ask them to they just did it uh, they just decided that was something they'd do and I really want to thank them for that. Would you guys give them some thanks for doing that for us? I appreciate it. Very much. Thank you, ladies. And one one other real quick thing. Uh, we are getting so close to our Thanksgiving potluck over at First Baptist in Wolferth and that we're doing with Flatland Bible Church and, and uh, with uh, uh, First Baptist in New Home. It is going to be so much fun. All of the pastors and the congregations are getting really excited. We don't want you to miss this. So if you haven't already signed up, we have the sign-up sheet in the foyer that you can uh, sign up. Let us know your family's coming and uh, what you're bringing. We need to com- communicate with their staff so that they have plenty of tables and chairs and all the things that we need for that. Um, so please don't drag your feet. Let us know today that you're coming. And also, um, uh, the, we, you know, if, if you can, uh, I think we've got, we may have enough turkeys now, but check the list there if we don't have enough turkeys. And Daryl set it up online too, so you can also sign up through the app. So, uh, but, but please, uh, do that as quickly as possible. We want to, we want to have a full house, uh, showing from Northridge Life and, uh, support the worship team and just, uh, enjoy the fellowship with brothers and sisters in the Lord. Okay. Time to get started. Um, so we're in our series on Mark. We're in chapter 10. Six more chapters to go. And um, after this conversation, we talked about this for a couple of weeks, after the conversation that Jesus had with the rich young ruler, um, and, and Jesus is teaching after that on what true wealth and what lasting position would look like in his kingdom, Jesus and his disciples resume their journey to Jerusalem. And as they begin this final leg of their trip, 
Jesus positions himself, the text tells us, in the front of the crowd, that little throng traveling to Jerusalem, which probably includes the 12 disciples and several other followers of Jesus. And Jesus is right in the front, leading the way. And there's an intensity and a determination in Jesus' eyes that even the disciples can't recall seeing in him before. And they're affected by it. And in one single sentence in our text that we read earlier, Mark describes them as amazed and afraid. There's something in Jesus that is that is eliciting this reaction from them. Now, hundreds of years before, Isaiah had prophesied about this very moment. Several chapters in Isaiah speak of Christ, prophesy about Christ coming as a suffering servant. And in this passage, in Isaiah 50, verse 7, he says, But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Now watch this, therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Now, you and I, probably in the last week, last month, last year, last decade, have not used the phrase, I set my face like a flint. It's not something that has lasted into the modern day vernacular. But it describes an unrelenting resolve. See, Jesus, as he makes his way to Jerusalem, he wasn't hesitant. He wasn't unsure. He wasn't being talked out of anything that was in Jerusalem. Whatever uh, was waiting for him there, whatever he was going to do, he was determined to go and to do it. And the disciples fear... And their amazement resulted from seeing Jesus so committed to keep to his direction, even in spite of what he told them, what he had told them that would happen once he arrived at his destination. See, twice already in the book of Mark, Jesus has told them in vivid language that he would suffer, that he would die, and that he would rise again once they reached Jerusalem. And here in chapter 10, he makes the same prediction, but if you'll recall what we read in chapter 8 and chapter 9, he adds more graphic detail. Let's read it again, beginning in verse 33. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Now, Jesus speaks of being handed over twice in this little paragraph. First, he's going to be handed over to the Jewish authorities who have over and over and over again displayed their hostility towards him and his teaching. Now, what Jesus doesn't say here, but what is clear elsewhere in Scripture, is that it is God the Father himself who will hand him over to be the final atoning sacrifice for the sins of his elect, past, present, and future. But the Jews won't be the only guilty party in his demise. For they're going to actually turn him over After he's turned over to them by God, they're going to turn him over to the Gentiles. In this case, that would mean the Romans. The Jews were an occupied nation. 
And they weren't authorized to put anyone to death on the authority of their laws alone. And, and the whole world, because of this, because God would deliver Jesus to the Jews, who would subsequently deliver him to the Gentiles, who would put him to death, the whole world, because remember, we've talked about this, in the Bible, the whole world was divided in only two groups. There were two people groups. There was Jews and there was everyone else, or they called them Gentiles. And so what, what is happening here is God is displaying that the whole world, Jews and Gentiles, will be guilty of the blood of Christ. No one will be able to say, we didn't do it. Jews and Gentiles, all guilty. And the Romans, by the way, would be up to the task. They had perfected the art of making an example of anyone that they deemed to be a threat to the empire. They had appropriated crucifixion from the Greeks before them and they had perfected it to be the most cruel and shameful way to put someone to death. Furthermore, to be handed over to godless pagans in the Jewish mindset was symbolic of being outside the covenant, outside of the blessing of the chosen people of God. And so you got to understand there's more than just a trial and a death. Jesus would be fully socially and religiously ostracized from his own people. John tells us in John chapter 1, he came to his own and his own received him not. Leviticus chapter 16 describes the annual Jewish day of atonement. And, and that ceremony, that sacrifice would paint the picture of the sacrifice that Jesus would one day make for the entire world. And on that day, the priests would gather and they would slaughter a bull and slaughter a goat for the sins of the people, the sins of the nation. But there was a second goat over which the sins of the people would be confessed. They'd lay their hands on the goat and confess the sins of the nation over that goat. And this goat would not be killed. This scapegoat would be sent away to wander outside of the camp, left to its own fate, and never allowed to come back into the camp. It would just wander bearing the sins of the people. What I want you to see this morning is that Jesus represented both the animals that were slaughtered He was the bloody sacrifice for the guilt of the people as well as the one who would carry their sins outside the camp, never to be seen or regarded again. In this, we see Jesus suffering outside Jerusalem at the hands of the Gentiles. Now, surely the disciples weren't dumb guys. And surely they understood if Jesus would undergo such treatment that they have to be regarded as guilty by association. That's how the state would look at them. Things were beginning to get real with Jesus and his little band of followers. And the result of the present circumstance was intense fear, intense confusion in the twelve as they saw their master not hiding out, not going on the lamb for a few weeks, but marching boldly headfirst into the Jewish and Roman hornet's nest and taking them along with him. If you look back at Mark chapter 8 and Mark chapter 9 and the predictions there, you'll find the clear predictions of Jesus' suffering and death were always followed by a teaching on 
discipleship, he always drew a clear line from his suffering to his expectation of what kinds of lives his disciples, both then and now, would live. You could say it like this, that he was showing them that his sacrifice was an example to follow. And this third and final prediction that we find here in Mark 10 is no different. With timing that can only be regarded as puzzling, James and John, two of Jesus' inner circle, remember usually when he went somewhere privately, he took who? Peter, James, and John. So two-thirds of his inner circle make their way to him. They approach him and they ask him a question. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What an odd way to make a request of Jesus. I'm not showing you my cards, Jesus, but you say yes, and then I'll show you what I've got in my hand. See, Mark doesn't say why they came to ask. Maybe with all this death talk, they thought time was running out to make their petition. Maybe they thought they'd been faithful since the beginning. Jesus called, they followed. They left their businesses behind them to follow Christ. Maybe they felt they deserved something from Jesus. Maybe they remembered how Jesus had just said in the, in the passage we talked about last week that they would receive now in this life a hundredfold what they'd left. And they just, you know, wanted to secure their reward. We don't know. But it's obvious, as we saw both in chapters 8 and 9, that these guys were still elevating personal concerns over kingdom concerns. They saw their powerful teacher as their personal genie in a body, just a genie in a bottle, just rub the genie and get your three wishes. That what they didn't see him as is Lord, the one to whom they unconditionally submit. As we would expect, Jesus shows a great deal more wisdom than we often do by asking for more specifics before granting their desires carte blanche. He says in verse 36, and he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? (laughs) It's always a good thing to get the fine print before you agree and sign on the dotted line. Amen. If only King Herod had been so wise. Do you remember that story? In a fit of lust, he'd said to his stepdaughter, Ask me for whatever you wish, up to half my kingdom. And his impetuosity delivered John the Baptist's head to her on a silver platter. But not so with Christ. Jesus generously responds to us when we ask. Has anybody found that to be true here this morning? Jesus generously responds to us when we ask, but his love and his wisdom only compels him to give what would actually bless and actually benefit us. If you've asked this morning, you say, well, Jesus isn't answering my prayers. If you've asked and you haven't received, can I tell you exactly why? I don't have to guess. I can tell you exactly why you haven't received. This is exactly why. Because a very good God knows one of two things. Either you don't need it, or you don't need it yet. Well, that got nothing from you guys. It's like, gimme, gimme, gimme. (laughs) See, what, what our problem is, is it's not that God, we're praying wrong, or, or, or we, you know, God's withholding from us. It's that the essence of our prayer is that we don't trust Jesus' goodness. 
His infallible goodness that always, he says, out of his own lips, gives good gifts to his children. Always. If my three-year-old wants an AR-15, I'm not going to... Yeah, I'm seeing some head nods. Well, why not? This is Texas. Get your three-year-old an AR-15. I should change that. This is Texas. If my three-year-old wants a circular saw, okay... I'm not going to buy my three-year-old a circular saw, not because I desire to withhold from him. Someday I would delight in buying him a circular saw. But now it can only result in irreparable damage. And some of you don't realize that the things that you are just getting so frustrated at God's silence on is because the thing that you are begging for would do irreparable damage to you. I won't ask for a show of hands of how many people have bought their $1.2 billion lottery ticket and have made it the subject of many petitions and prayers. Boy, it got quiet again. I am just not getting anywhere with this crowd this morning. God only gives. God always gives, but He only gives to our advantage. And aren't you really glad? Aren't you glad? He's always giving. You can't count the ways right this moment in time God is giving to you. But He refuses to give what is not to your advantage. Excepting in the case where He's judging. He lets you have what you want just so He can see what you really need. So you can see, rather, what you really need. And faith consists in believing that and trusting Him to dispense wisely to us. And James and John proved that we don't really believe that with their imprudent request. This is what they wanted. Verse 37. Grant us to sit, one at your right hand, one on your left, in your glory. Jesus, we don't want much. We just want to be the vice and the vice vice president of your, of your kingdom. That's all we want. No big deal. Matthew adds a much, much more embarrassing detail to this exchange. See, Matthew tells us that it was actually, that that James and John actually delegated this question to their mommy to go to Jesus and ask on their behalf. They didn't ask themselves in Matthew's account. Their mommy did. Can you imagine your mother? Two adult men and your mother goes up to Santa Claus and asks him what you want for Christmas. That's a picture of what's happening here. They viewed Jesus as Santa Claus and they they sent their mommy to make their request. Well, as in the two previous times that Jesus predicted his suffering, the disciples' pride and position-seeking stands in sharp contrast to his own humility. Night and day, black and white. When the two brothers speak of Christ being in his glory, they don't have his mind in their mind what we envision when we talk about Christ in his glory, seated at the right hand of God. They, they have in mind the throne of David with all the, of his international enemies groveling at his feet. They were still fixated on political and military possibilities, perhaps imagining that his rising would be marked by vengeance. And Jesus answered to their request makes a comparison of his path with the one that they are seeking. He says, Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. 
Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? See, James and John were expressing their desires with limited knowledge. If that sounds familiar, say amen. So four of you, it sounds familiar to the rest of you might have been dozing or, you know, checking Facebook. So I'll say it again. James and John are expressing their desires with limited knowledge. They don't know everything. They have no knowledge of what Jesus would accomplish. And they have no knowledge of what it would require of Jesus. See, it's a very human thing. Every one of us has been cursed with this. Every single one of us. It's a very human thing to strive for glory. Even while we avoid the cross that always precedes the glory we seek. But in response to Jesus or to Peter's aversion to the cross in Mark 8, remember that? He said, you're never going to die on a cross, Jesus. Jesus called Peter Satan and then he told everyone standing around that they must take up their cross to follow him. True followers always bear crosses. No exceptions. Jesus asked them a rhetorical question. Hey James, hey John, do you have what it takes to do what I'm going to do? See, Jesus saw that before him lay a cup, before him lay a baptism and the cup was filled to the brim with God's wrath and Jesus had no option but to drink that cup to the dregs it was a cup so terrible that he would pray while agonizing in the garden of Gethsemane that it would pass from him if there was any other way Jesus's Baptism is not like what Tavares experienced or what Jesus himself experienced in the Jordan River. His baptism was more like Noah's flood, a single moment when the father's back would be turned while all of his righteous justice would descend upon the son. And in answer to this question, are you able, the brothers presumptuously answer, we are able. Oh my goodness. They had no idea that the cup and the baptism which Christ could endure because of His holiness and His innocence would have immediately thrust them forever into hell, which was the very fate that Christ was rescuing them from. See, Christ endured what would consume them. But Jesus didn't respond to their insistence when they said, oh yeah, we can do that, by simply rebuking them with a simple, no, you can't. Jesus didn't do that. Instead, he gave them a snapshot, a glimpse, into their very own future. The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Their sharing in his cup and undergoing his baptism would only occur after Jesus had removed the bitter sting of it for them.
It will not happen before them. They will not drink or be baptized before Jesus. They will not drink or be baptized alongside of Jesus. He goes first. I'm so glad. I'm so glad He goes first. As I face all the persecution and pain that this world can dish out, I can do it confidently because Jesus went first. And He says this to me. He says, He says, Fear not. In this world you'll have tribulation, but don't be afraid because I've already overcome the world. And thank God for it. Jesus' sacrifice by going first will enable these two young men to hold the things of this world loosely and to experience a death to their own pride, their own desires every single day. And furthermore, someday remembering his sacrifice, James would be the first of the twelve to be martyred. He would be beheaded for Christ's glory. His brother John would be arrested. He would be boiled in oil and yet miraculously survive or survive and experience no harm from that. Must have been really frustrating for those Romans. So then they exile him to the island of Patmos and he writes the revelation and dies later as a very, very old man. Neither one of them had easy lives. They drank of Christ's cup. They were underwent his baptism. But the thing was that Christ went first. See, neither James nor John would contribute to Christ's atoning sacrifice, but both of them would pay a steep price in order to faithfully proclaim the power of Jesus' cross. And his cross would be joyfully embraced by them as a call to sacrifice and to humility that that was exemplified by him. Furthermore, Jesus tells them that the position of sitting at his right or his left hand was not Jesus's to grant, but those positions had already been determined. Now, this verse caused some in the early church, along with a couple of others, to heretically assert that Jesus couldn't be co-equal with God since he claimed to have no authority to appoint people to the highest positions. He claimed to know something that God didn't, is what the verse appears to say. But that's not exactly what we're reading here. Jesus says, quote, it's not mine to grant, but that it had been, quote, appointed. Jesus was not putting himself at the mercy of these two greedy brothers who were saying, hey, whatever we ask, give it to us. They just wanted power, but his kingdom conformed to an eternal plan that had been ordained by the Father before the foundation of the world. And so Jesus in his humanity made a decision to obey God and not cater to them. Furthermore, given his repeated revelation, he was demonstrating in himself the perfect submission of the last Adam in all things. Where Adam failed, took no responsibility and failed the entire human race, you and I included, Christ would do no such thing. He would submit to God in all things, whether they be things of life or things of death. How unlike James and John was Jesus. 
Their hands were grasping for glory. And he was willing to trust the Father's goodness with everything he had, even his very life. Matthew Henry once said, Our care must be that we may have wisdom and grace to know how to suffer with him, that we may trust him to provide what the degrees of our glory shall be. And this is where James and John utterly failed. Well, as you can imagine, this whole exchange set the entire company of disciples off. The Bible tells us they were indignant with the two brothers. Nobody was happy that day. And we could graciously assume, we could give them the benefit of the doubt and graciously assume that they were upset because the brothers ignored what Jesus had recently taught them concerning being a servant of all and about the first being last and vice versa. But the more likely reason for their consternation, if you know anything about human nature, was that they were angling for the exact same positions and these two monkeys beat them to the punch. So once again, with the clear revelation of his own suffering as the backdrop, Jesus teaches these guys about what uh, about the kingdom in which they desire, they want to be the highest positions in this kingdom, and Jesus is about to teach them how that kingdom works. And he begins by examining the mechanics of the world's kingdoms. He says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. He's reminding them of what they see around them all the time in their occupied nation. He's reminding them of the Romans. He He's reminding them how they take what they want from those they dominate. How they demand respect. How people were compelled to declare that Caesar is Lord. How they fight and claw for recognition. How the history of their empire runs red with intrigue and assassination. And he says to those who would be entrusted with spreading his message, entrusted with advancing his kingdom, entrusted with displaying his miracle-working power, arguably the most important job ever given to mortals to be the apostles of Jesus Christ. He says to them in comparison with the way the world does things, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever will be first among you must be the slave of all. Three times Christ has predicted his suffering and three times he immediately follows these predictions with his rules of how his kingdom is going to function. In Mark 8, he told them that they must take up their cross and follow him, that they must willingly lose their lives for his sake and stop trying to save themselves. In Mark 9, he told them that they must become like little children, be the last and be the servant of all. And now he tells them that they must reject the world's way of doing things altogether and gladly become like slaves. The word Jesus uses for slave is doulos. And it's often mistranslated in most English versions of the Bible as servant. Kind of takes the cultural sting out of the word slave, but it usually means slave. 
It metaphorically stands for one who gives up himself to another's will. Those whose service is used by Christ in extending and advancing his cause among men. Or one who's devoted to another to the disregard of his own interests. Think about us. Think about American values, Texan values. How could Jesus ask these men to adopt such a humble perception of themselves? How could he ask them not to fight for their rights? How could he ask them not to fight for recognition? Well, he could do that. Because as the glorious Son of Man, that's exactly what he did. Verse 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Christ refers to himself as the Son of Man here. We've discussed how that that title comes from a prophecy in Daniel A prophecy of the messianic ruler who will reign before the ancient of days, the exalted God forever and ever. Yet, using this kingly title, he says, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. If one so glorious can humble himself to the point of death on a cross, surely... He can expect his followers to live and even die by his example and for his glory. But the fact of the matter is that our expectation is not of some pathetic martyr's death. This message, the point of this message is not so you can say, okay, I'll just die for Jesus. You know, I guess if Jesus says so, no, you're missing the point. The point is not of a martyr's death. The point is of a resurrection and glory. We're not giving up glory. We're exchanging, passing, fading, ending glory for eternal, unchangeable glory. We are trading for the day when we will hear our master say, Well done. Good and faithful servant. Enter into my rest. Receive the crown of life. That's what we're fighting for. We're just not clutching to it here. Because we know that all the fools that are clutching for it here will someday have to loosen their grip in death and it'll all be gone. They'll descend naked into the grave having nothing. But we will be robed in robes of white living before the face of God forever. It's a worthy trade. Here's the problem. How can proud position and glory seekers like James and John and you and me expect such a glorious end as we embrace the lowest place for our Lord? Well, we can only expect such an outcome because He has given His life as a ransom. For many. And that includes many of you. And I pray that it includes the rest of you soon. 
He saved us from empty pursuit so that we can enjoy his grace, enjoy his power, and enjoy his fellowship forever. And he has, by his ransoming death, enabled us to turn loose. Just turn loose. Because you can never embrace Christ with hands that are already full. You need empty hands to grab hold of Jesus and keep him in your grasp. Would you stand with me? God, as I prayed at the beginning, I just ask you, by your grace and mercy, to examine our hearts. To look deeply inside of us and call us to the higher place, Lord. The more glorious place, the lasting place. Help us to look deeply in our hearts and not make excuses, but make sacrifices. Lord, to lay down whatever is displeasing to you, to lay down the things that tie us to this world. Help us to love you, your word, your truth. Help those of us who have committed our lives to you to return to the point where Tavares began this morning, that we would declare in memory of that moment that we would say we are dead to this world and we are alive to Christ. Everything we are, we are because of Christ. So I simply pray at the end of this message, help us, Lord. Amen. We shared with you guys last week um, that we're going to have some changes coming up in the way that we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Um, and that change is that beginning next week, um, November 13th, we are going to begin serving wine as a part of communion. Is everyone okay so far? Take a deep breath if you need to. Uh, the reason we're doing this is really very simple. I, I, I shared for a while last week, and so you guys were, I know not everyone was here, so you're going to get the shorter version uh, this morning. Uh, but if you have any questions after the service, I would um, very much encourage you to come talk to us. The reason we're doing this is very simple. We take the sacraments very, very seriously here at Northridge Life. The two sacraments that Jesus has given the church are baptism and the Lord's Supper. And we want to celebrate those in a way that is as biblically faithful as possible. And so the reason we'll be including wine as part of the Lord's Supper is because that's the biblically faithful way to celebrate it. When Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, uh, he did not use bread and grape juice. Uh, he did not use bread and uh, non-alcoholic form of wine. And no matter what some scholars have attempted to say over the years, uh, the, bib- the biblical narrative is absolutely clear that Jesus, in instituting the Lord's Supper, used bread and wine, and we want to be faithful to what the Scriptures say. And the reality is, is that through almost all of church history, the church has always used bread and wine 
in the Lord's Supper, and it hasn't been controversial until a couple hundred years ago when the church began to change the way they celebrated the Lord's Supper, not because of any biblical conviction, but simply because of the pressure of culture to change what they were doing. Essentially, culture was saying that that wine or alcohol in any form is sinful, and so the church can have no part in that. The church can in no way endorse or use something that is in any way wrong or sinful. And so, as I shared last week, our question has to be uh, not what does culture say, but what does the Bible say? And when we look at the biblical texts, it is clear, and, and I could I could give you, you know, a dozen or more passages, but, but we saw briefly in the Old Testament that, that wine was used as part of the patriarchal blessings, um, that wine was used as part of the offerings given to the Lord in Leviticus. Um, we see that wine is used in the celebration of the Passover meal. We see in Proverbs 3, it says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce, and your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. We see that as a blessing, as a good gift from the Lord. We see in the New Testament that Jesus not only drinks wine, but his first miracle is turning water into wine. Uh, very good wine, we're told. Uh, we see Jesus promising the disciples that he'll drink wine with them again in his Father's kingdom. In Matthew 26. Again, I, I could go on and on for a long time. I'm not going to do that. But the point is, is that we have no biblical grounds whatsoever to say that the use of wine in communion is in any way wrong or sinful. We look at, we look at Jesus. He clearly used wine in communion. We look at the Apostle Paul, um, in 1 Corinthians 11, where the use of wine was being significantly abused. And we see Paul's response to that, not saying, well, we, we just got to switch to grape juice, guys. You guys are, are making a mess of this. No, instead he calls them uh, to biblical maturity. He calls them to use the gifts of God in a way that honors God. And that's important because one of the questions that we most frequently get is, if we're using wine in communion, isn't that in some way enabling those who struggle with alcoholism, with drunkenness. And we have to be absolutely clear that the Scripture does teach us that drunkenness and alcoholism is a sin. Right? We, we cannot have any wiggle room on that. The Bible is absolutely clear on that. Um, but my short answer would be, um, based on the Scriptures, that alcoholism was just as much a sin and a problem in the time of Christ in the time of Paul. And again, that was not reason for Jesus or for Paul to say, hey, we've, we've got to just get rid of this. We've got to change the way we're doing this. No, instead, Jesus and Paul um, call us as believers to maturity in Christ, to deny ourselves, to put aside our sin, and to live in a way that's obedient. And so, having said all that, we understand as a church um, that the issue of, of alcoholism is is an issue today, um, and that some of you have been greatly, greatly affected by that and wounded by that in your own lives. And because of that, we are going to continue to serve grape juice as well when we offer the Lord's Supper. And so beginning next week, when you come down through the line, um, and we'll have it clearly labeled so that you'll know 
uh, what you're partaking in, but we will have uh, both wine and grape juice offered. Um, and it will be your choice which you choose to partake in. And we want to be really clear on this. I said this last week uh, as well. But this is not going to be an issue that we allow to be divisive in the body of Christ in any way. There is absolutely no room for that in the church. If you come through the line and you choose to partake um, of the wine, um, then do it joyfully with a thankful heart to the glory of God. If you uh, decide to partake of grape juice and do it joyfully with a thankful heart to the glory of God. But we're not going to be looking at the person behind us in line saying, Psh, that's, that's not a good choice, right? Um, there's just, there's no room for that. We're not going to allow this to be something that's divisive in any way. Um, instead, this is an opportunity for us, um, to celebrate the unity that we have in Christ and to practice Christian love and charity to each other. And so we will no way look down on those who choose differently than we do. Uh, parents, if you have children that participate, it will be, it will be your choice which you want them to participate in. We leave that decision, um, to families. Um, but again, um, and I want to close with this, that what is most important um, as we come and partake of the Lord's Supper is not ultimately whether we pick up a little cup of juice or wine, um, but that we come and we partake and we celebrate in a way that honors and glorifies Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church. Amen? And so that'll be that'll be beginning next week that we're going to be implementing that. And again, if you have questions or concerns, then I really want to encourage you to come talk to me, come talk to Pastor Mark, and we would love to answer any any questions or concerns that you may have. Uh, but having said all that, we are going to now celebrate the Lord's Supper together as the body of Christ, which is one of the greatest privileges that we have as the church. So I'm going to ask our helpers um, if they would come and prepare to serve. I mean, as I, as I said, what's most important is that when we partake of the Lord's table, that we do so in a way that honors and glorifies Christ. And one of the things that Scripture is very clear on is that the table of the Lord, partaking of the body and blood of Christ, is meant for believers. Christ has given his body and his blood for believers. And so we dishonor the table, we dishonor Christ and his sacrifice when we come and partake as non-believers. That's why we're so clear every single week that if you have trusted in Christ, if you've put your faith in him, trusted in him as Lord and Savior, then this table is for you. If you haven't done that, then we ask that you uh, don't come and partake. But we are we want you to know that we are, are praying earnestly for you and that this morning you would have heard the gospel clearly and that you would make a profession of faith in Christ and we want to we want to help you with that we want to pray with you about that we want to talk to you about that so if you are not a believer we ask that that you don't come to the table this morning but we want you to come and talk to us um, so we can disciple you um, and tell you how you can truly uh, know Jesus through his word uh, but for all of you who have placed your faith in Christ and trusted in him um, you guys can come forward and partake of the elements, take them back to your seat, 
And in a moment, we will take these together. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Let's give thanks. Father, we are, we are so thankful for the word who became flesh, who dwelt among us, who suffered and died in our place, who allowed his body to be broken uh, for our sakes, that we could be whole, who allowed his precious blood to be spilled, that the stain of sin on each one of us might be made perfectly clean. Jesus, we give you all honor, all glory, all praise this morning. Our perfect lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Thank you for your obedience to the Father. Thank you that you humbled yourself. You became obedient to death, even death on a cross. For the sake of your elect, for the sake of your children. That we could stand here this morning... uh, not in, not in fear, but that we can come to your table with confidence, knowing that we will always find grace and mercy in our time of need. So we give you all, all thanks, all praise, all glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys would put your hands in a receiving position. Let me read you this benediction uh, from First Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. It says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen.